Come on now, it's bedtime. Did you brush your teeth? Let me smell. Let me smell. You did not. Put on your PG. Hold still. Okay, seriously, seriously. This is this is baby bye. Time. Right now. I'm not kidding around. I mean it. But we're not tired. Well, I am tired. Will you read us a bedtime story? No. Pretty please. The physical appearance of the please makes no difference. It is still no, so go to sleep. But we can't. We're all hyper. And without a bedtime story, we'll just keep getting up and bugging you all night long. Oh, fine. All right. All right. Sleepy kittens. Sleepy kittens. What are these? Puppets. You use them when you tell the story. Okay, let's get this over with. Three little kittens loved to play. They had fun in the sun all day. Then their mother came out and said, time for kittens to go to bed. Wow, this is garbage. Do you actually like this? Keep reading. <sighs> Come on. All right, all right, all right, all right. Three little kittens started to bawl. Mommy, we're not tired at all. Their mother smiled and said with a purr, fine but at least you should brush your fur. Now you brush the fur. This is literature? A two-year-old could have written this. All right. Three little kittens with fur all brushed said, we can't sleep, we feel too rushed. Their mother replied with a voice like silk. Fine, but at least you should drink your milk. Now make them drink the milk. Oh, I don't like this book. This is going on forever. Three little kittens with milk all gone rubbed their eyes and started to yawn. <sighs> we can't sleep. We can't even try. Then their mother sang a lullaby. Good night, kittens. Close your eyes. Sleep in peace until you rise. Though while you sleep, we are apart, your mommy loves you with all her heart. The end, okay, good night. Wait. What? What about good night kisses? No, 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 there will be no kissing or hugging or kissing. He's not gonna kiss us good night, Agnes. Aww. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hope. My name is Ashley Lentz. I'm one of the pastors here. We're so glad that you have decided to join us for worship this morning. That was a clip from the movie Despicable Me. Uh, Gru is actually a villain, and Gru has adopted those three little girls as part of his evil villainous plan. And Gru's softening a little bit already. At the very beginning of the movie, they ask him to read a bedtime story, and he says no and slams the door. So he's already softening a little bit, but some things are going to happen in between all, all of the stuff, okay? So we're going to follow Gru and the girls for the rest of our message, but it ties right into, believe it or not, what Paul writes to a region of churches in Galatia. We begin a brand new sermon series this weekend called God's Electric Power Company. Uh, it's kind of a silly name. When we were handed uh, the 
preaching schedule, the sermon series, Pastor Mike always likes to walk us through why the name of the series is what it is and kind of his thought behind it. When he handed us the sermon series and he said, it's God's electric power company, we were all kind of like, huh. And he said, it's the best thing he could come up with for uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, the next four letters that we're covering because it's G-E-P-C. Yeah, so there's going to be... Good, good stuff, good stuff coming. There is a lot of power that comes out of the next four Pauline letters, Paul writes them, that we are going to read as a church together. If you're new or this is one of your first visits, we're reading through our Bible together uh, this year. As we're finished like the Gospels, we're reading these New Testament letters, and the letters go by pretty quickly. If you haven't picked up your Bible yet because it's kind of big and daunting, Now's a really good time to start. We're covering Galatians today, so tomorrow we start Ephesians. Ephesians is a few chapters. We read like a chapter or less a day. So before you know it, if you just want to read a chapter a day, you'll have read the entire New Testament, almost the entire New Testament with us. It'll be so much fun. So I just invite you to participate. And in the meantime, let's familiarize ourselves with Galatians. If you read it this week, you perhaps thought, this is good. There's also a lot of like interesting cultural stuff in here that I don't quite understand. That's why you come to church and we help you with that stuff. So without further ado, Galatians. I love Galatians. I love Galatians. It's part of the reason I'm a Lutheran pastor. In fact, Luther loved Galatians. He called it my dear epistle. In this epistle, he says, I have placed my confidence. He called it his Katie Von Bora. That was his wife's name. I don't love it enough to, you know, elevate it to the status of my husband because he's pretty darn awesome. But it is a really good letter. It's a really good letter packed full of a ton of really great reminders to our church today. Certainly it was written to a specific situation. I'll lay that out for you. But there's also a lot that we can learn from Paul's words uh, into that situation back in Paul's day. So uh, Galatians, we just wrapped up 1 and 2 Corinthians. That was a letter to a church in Corinth. Corinth is a city. Galatia is not a city. Galatia is a region. So you can see on the map this kind of highlighted area. Galatia is this giant region. And so Paul is writing to a series of churches, a bunch of churches in this region. You can see his uh, missionary journeys have gone through this region. All three of his missionary journeys have made travels through here. And so at the very beginning of Galatians, he writes in verse 2, all the brothers and sisters here join me in sending this letter to the churches of Galatia. So lots of churches, but there's something specific happening in all of these churches that has become a problem, and it's become very divisive. In, in these communities. Uh, Galatia is full of Gentile believers, so they're pretty far removed from Jerusalem, where Jewish people would have kind of the hub of the Jewish religion, okay? So we have Gentile believers. Gentile believers don't have a reference for Jewish law, Jewish rites and customs. That's kind of foreign to them. But there are also Jewish believers who have this Jewish background, who have infiltrated the Gentile church, they've come to tell them, Paul calls them agitators or Judaizers. They have come to tell these churches, Gentile believers, the way that you're doing following Jesus, the way that you're doing this Christ thing isn't quite right. They tell them there's a whole bunch of other stuff that you need alongside Jesus. Things like the Jewish law. That's really, that's really how you're going to get it. Jewish law, Jewish rituals, food, food customs, 
Specifically in this context, it was uh, the issue of circumcision. These Judaizers had come in and said to these Gentile Christians, hey, you're not really getting it because you're not circumcised, and that's part of the Jewish law. Can you imagine if someone stood on this stage and preached to you, you know, you're doing okay, church, Jesus is pretty good, but you also need to go through this painful, physical, bodily change. And by the way, no general anesthesia existed in Paul's day, so like it's going to hurt. That would be absurd. If that ever happens, you get up and you leave. That is not good theology. Nobody should ever say that to you, but that's what was happening in these churches. Essentially, these churches were being told, eh, you're doing okay, but it's Jesus plus. It's Jesus plus Jewish law that's going to make you right with God. It's Jesus plus circumcision. That's really what's going to get you there. That's what's going to make you a great Christ follower. Jesus plus following the Jewish festival calendar. And it caused division. It was a major issue. And so that's what Paul addresses. And right at the beginning of this letter, in verse 6, he says, I am shocked that you are turning away so soon from God who called you to himself through the loving mercy of Christ. Paul skips all the niceties of a letter in this day and age. There's like actually a format for these things, and Paul totally skips the niceties section. He gets straight to getting mad at them. You are following a different way that pretends to be the good news, but is not the good news at all. You're being fooled by those who deliberately twist the truth concerning Christ. That's how he begins this letter. And we might say, no one's really fooling us. I don't think we're really falling away from the gospel. No one's really telling me Jesus plus. And I would say our culture tells us Jesus plus all the time. People might not walk up to you and say, yeah, you're an okay Christian, but really it's Jesus plus this other thing. But certainly the way that we interact in community, what our social media feeds communicate, the way that we converse with people who don't agree with us on everything, sometimes that does communicate Jesus plus. In our world, it looks like Jesus plus my political views. You're not really a good Christian if you're on that side of the spectrum. Or you're not really a good Christian. Jesus doesn't really love you as much as he loves me if you're on that side of the political spectrum. That's Jesus plus, and it's exactly what Paul addresses in this church. Maybe it's Jesus plus my stance on Name that hot button issue here. Is anybody else receiving like a bajillion uh, flyers in their mailbox because of the election that's coming up? All of those flyers have some hot button issue right here on the front of them. All of these are good things. It's good to be politically affiliated, to research, know where you stand, fight for those things. What's not okay is when we communicate that we're better Christians because of it. That's Jesus plus. How about Jesus plus my religious tradition? Well, you do church that way. Or your music is this other way. Or you have that kind of preacher. That's Jesus plus something that we've elevated to the level of Jesus. That's not theologically right. That's not why Jesus came and died for us. Maybe it's my achievements or my works. This is called works righteousness, being made right with God because of our works. There are churches that preach works righteousness, that it's Jesus plus your work. It's Jesus plus confession, Jesus plus your tithe, Jesus plus your attendance, whatever it is. That's not right. Jesus didn't ever say that. 
Paul's addressing that. He says that's wrong. It's Jesus, period, church. We can list all the stuff that just slowly infiltrates. We might not even recognize this happening. And at the end of the day, Jesus died on a cross and resurrected for you. It's Jesus, period. I think we just lost power. That's very interesting. Anyway, we're going to keep on keeping on without power, and our production team is going to be awesome and get it, get it all back on for us. <laughs> anyway, it's not Jesus plus my PowerPoint, everyone. We're going to be just fine. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Woo, yes. Oh, my goodness. See, God shows up in all the little things. There's, like, a ton of stuff around here this morning that's been, like, is God here? Where do, what's happening? Anyway. Jesus. It's all Jesus. My PowerPoint slides are nice, but they're not Jesus, okay? It's all about Jesus. And this is the thread that Paul weaves through this letter beautifully. Paul is a master at writing things down. He's excellent at it, if you've read any of his letters. Paul weaves this together. Why Jesus, period, is the only thing that matters for this church that is so divided about these issues. And I want to give you some tools in your toolbox as we... um, as we dive into more of these letters, because it's easy to think, like, you need to be a theologian to understand them. You don't. They were written so that regular old church people would understand them. That's why Paul wrote them. It's helpful for people to give you context and all the things. But so I want to give you tools as you keep reading that will help you learn and will follow Paul's thread through this letter as an example. One of those tools is to highlight, underline, circle, repeated words or phrases. Paul lays out, this is the reason Martin Luther loved this letter so much, is because Paul lays out Jesus and world, or gospel and law, really, really well. Law and gospel is, a, is like a hallmark of our Lutheran theology. When I learned about law and gospel for the first time, light bulbs went off. I was like, this makes so much sense. Here's how he lays this out, side by side. If you go home, take it, highlighter, underline, these words, and you'll see this argument all throughout this letter. He says, in Jesus, we're children, we're heirs. In Jesus, we have the spirit, we are free, and we produce fruit. These are the beautiful things that come with living a life in Jesus. On the flip side of that, he says, when we live in the world, we're a slave. We're a slave to our flesh, our sinful desires, law, not necessarily Jewish law for us, other ways of living, where we can be enslaved to those things. Maybe my work fits under the law. This is law and gospel. And as far as I know, we all live in both Jesus and the world. That's a really hard tension to manage. How am I supposed to live in Jesus freely if I also have a sinful nature and a sinful flesh? Paul knows this really, really well. In fact, he references this being a slave to the law that he, like, he has been enslaved to the law in this letter. He says, do you remember when I was persecuting Jews, when I was killing Jews for the sake of the law? He says, I've been there. It's not fun. If you remember back to Romans chapter 7, in Romans 7, Paul writes, same Paul who wrote this letter, I don't do the things that I want to do, and I do the things that I don't want to do. Oh, what a wretched man I am, Paul says. This is the tension. Paul, who knows freedom, who wants this church to understand freedom, also intimately knows the tension of living in both Jesus and in the world. 
And I think Martin Luther helps us understand this pretty well. Uh, He talks about active righteousness and passive righteousness. Uh, Paul writes in Galatians 2, he says, if keeping the law, if living up to the worldly standards or living in the world, if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. I actually like the NIV translation more. Here's what the NIV says. I do not set aside the grace of God, this gift of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. If righteousness, being made right with God, being put in line with God, being set into who God has called us to be, being made new in God, if that could be gained through the world, through the law, through our worldly selves, our sinful nature, then Christ died for nothing. And we say, interesting, but like how does this play out? Because I still live a certain way. So how do I uphold Jesus and also live in that way? without climbing the ladder to get to Jesus? How do we maintain Jesus, period, and still live in a way that points people to God? Here's where Luther talks about active and passive righteousness. He says active righteousness are things that we participate in all the time. In fact, we are righteous in these things because they make us right with one another. They unite us as community. They keep us safe. Things like our judicial system. I bet you all drove on the correct side of the road to get to church this morning. If you didn't, you wouldn't be at church this morning. It would be silly for me to think that driving on the correct side of the road would make me right with God. I do it because I participate in active righteousness. I want to be right with you all and keep you safe and keep me and my family safe. So I abide by these kind of things. Active righteousness includes living morally and ethically upright. I don't do that because I think it's going to earn me a place in God's kingdom. I do it because I know who I am called to be in Christ. There's a downward flow here, okay? When we know who we are in Christ, when we receive this righteousness, it flows out of us. This also are things like traditions and ceremonies. I actually really like tradition. If we ever stopped singing Silent Night at Christmas wouldn't that be appalling? You like tradition too, based on the response I'm getting. (laughs) Tradition's not a bad thing. And in fact, those things align us with each other. They give us common identity. They help unite us. And we may even experience God in the midst of these things. Now, here's the deal with active righteousness too. People who are not believers, unbelievers, also practice active righteousness. You don't need to be a believer to follow the law. There's a lot of unbelievers who live ethically and are morally upright. They're good people. There's a lot of unbelievers who have their own traditions or ceremonies, things that they participate in. Active righteousness is what anybody can do at any time because it aligns us. It aligns us as a community. So what is godly righteousness? This is what Martin Luther calls passive righteousness. He says, there is a righteousness that comes only from God. Here's how he describes it. For here we work for nothing, render nothing to God. We only receive and permit someone else to work in us, namely God. We only receive. This is a posture of surrender. 
This is a posture of opening ourselves up to what God has for us. We only receive this kind of righteousness. When we receive it, certainly we can, it helps influence our active righteousness. But people who don't receive passive righteousness can also be actively righteous. This is godly righteousness. It falls on us as a gift. Luther goes on to write, This is a righteousness hidden in a mystery which the world does not understand. The world does not understand this kind of righteousness. And if we are in Jesus and in the world, to describe this to our worldly friends, family members, it's not going to make a lot of sense. The world doesn't get it. It's encapsulated in mystery because it takes full surrender. Active righteousness is fun because we kind of have control. I choose to participate in those things. This is a surrender posture. I choose to totally let God wash over me with this. And that's a little out of my control. Paul gets emotional about this. This is a very emotional letter. Paul writes in Galatians 5, he says, So truly, he's getting toward the end of his letter. He says, So truly, Christ has set us free. This is real freedom, people, he says. Don't miss it. To live with Holy Spirit power, this is real freedom. Now make sure, he says, that you stay free. Paul, who knows worldly slavery, slavery to sinful, our sinful, fleshy nature, he says, make sure that you stay free. Don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. He says, but we who live by the Spirit, we eagerly wait to receive by faith the righteousness God has promised to us. We eagerly wait to, there's that receive word, receive by faith the righteousness God has promised to us. I was listening to our Pastor Mike Drop podcast. Uh, Pastor Mike and other pastors across Hope, we rotate talking about the daily Bible readings on this podcast every Wednesday at noon. And if you want more in-depth you know, discussion about the Bible readings, that's a really good resource. You can always go back and watch it. But I was tuning in live at noon on Wednesday, and Pastor Mike said something about God's promises. He said, we are in big trouble as preachers, as communities, if we ever confuse God's promises with God's law. If we turn righteousness into a law, something that I have to climb the ladder to reach Jesus in, that's really a problem because righteousness is a promise. It's already yours. God's already poured it out for you because of what Jesus has done on the cross. So we wait to receive by faith this righteousness that is promised to us. For when we place our faith in Christ Jesus, there's no benefit in being circumcised or being uncircumcised. In 2023 words, we could say, when we place our faith in Christ Jesus, there's no benefit in being on that side of the spectrum or this side of the political spectrum, on worshiping this way or on worshiping that way. What's important, don't miss this, what is important is faith expressing itself in love. What's important is faith expressing itself in love love. This is a church that's been so divided, many churches that have been divided. And Paul says to them, all the things, this righteousness is promised to you. 
we receive it by faith and we express our faith in love. So how do we live in this tension? If that's ours and we're, we're learning how to love and we're not loving to climb the ladder, we're loving because it's flowing out of us. It's the spirit-driven life, if you will. What about the world? Because we still all live in the world. Watch as Gru wrestles with this tension in this movie. He lives in the world and he's starting to learn about love, but there are still things that pull at him. Take a look. Only 48 hours till the launch, and all systems are go. Oh, about that. I was thinking that maybe we could move the date of the heist. Please tell me this is not as a result of the girls' dance recital, is it? No, 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 the recital, don't. That's stupid. I just think it's kind of weird to do it on a Saturday. I was thinking maybe a heist is a Tuesday thing, right? Groove! You and I have been working on this for years. It's everything we've dreamed of. Your chance to make history become the man who stole the moon. But these girls are becoming a major distraction. They need to go. If you don't do something about it, then I will. I understand. Oh, Miss Eddie. What are you doing here? I'm here for the girls. I received a call that you wanted to return them. And uh, also, I did purchase a Spanish dictionary. <coughs> I didn't like what you said. But I... <coughs> Oh. I will get the girls ready. Mr. Gru. Tell her you want to keep us. All right, girls, come on, let's go. Goodbye, Mr. Gru. Thanks for everything. Hmm. The world really easily gets in the way really quickly can tear us right on back. It's the tension we always live in. And as Paul concludes this letter, he reminds these churches of that tension. He says, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are really clear. I don't need to read the list to you again. You heard it in our scripture reading. But every single thing on this list, every one of these things divides. Divides people, divides families, divides churches, divides communities. All of these things divide. And Jesus did not come for us to be divided. He writes, there is no longer, this is in Galatians, Paul writes, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. He says, you, now that you belong, we belong to Christ. You are true children of Abraham. Mind you, he's saying this to a Gentile church. He's saying, you're children of Abraham, which is a Jewish thing. But if we're all one in Jesus, he says, you are his heirs. And God's promise, that old promise to Abraham, 
belongs to you. These things divide. And we're supposed to be one. We're united in who God has called us to be. And a couple of verses later, Paul says what it looks like to be built up in the Spirit, to be united. He says, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. We have the sinful nature over here, but the Holy Spirit is going to produce fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against these things, there is no law, Paul says. How beautiful is that? The best part about this is that I don't produce this fruit, and you don't produce this fruit. The Holy Spirit produces this fruit. There's nothing we do to climb that ladder of righteousness, to think that we're going to be made right with God. If I could have more self-control or more patience, wouldn't we all already be doing that? Like, wouldn't we all live into those things? The Holy Spirit produces these things in us. My parents have an apple tree in their front yard. uh, And as far as I know, they have never watered that apple tree. It just produces apples. Paxton's at an age where we'll pull into their driveway and he'll go, apple, apple. He can eat a whole apple. It's the best. So I pick apples for him. But my parents don't produce that fruit. They don't even help to produce that fruit. It could use a little bit of pruning, if I'm being honest. They're not here. I'll remind them of that later. God produces the fruit on that tree. And if we are the tree, God produces this fruit in us, too. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So how do we get from sinful nature to Holy Spirit producing fruit in our lives? It's the very next verse. Paul says, those who belong to Christ, we've nailed the passions and desires of our sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. It's actually really hard to move from our worldly sinful selves into Holy Spirit producing fruit, spirit driven. It requires crucifying. That's an aggressive word. That's kind of a bloody word. Requires crucifying our passions and desires to his cross and crucifying them there. It means we step out of the comfort of the world. It's actually easier to be enslaved. God's chosen people, the Israelites, knew that. When they left Egypt and were wandering in the wilderness, they actually wanted to go back to slavery in Egypt because it was harder to be uncomfortable and to just trust God's process. It's actually easier for us, too, to hang out in our sinful nature in the world, to conform to the people around us, the world around us. We have to crucify our sinful desires, move out of this comfort zone, and into allowing Holy Spirit to show up in our life into simply receiving the grace, the righteousness of God, and living into it. As Paul ends this letter, at the very end, Paul reminds these churches, the people in these churches, that they are being made new. That as much division has happened, all of it, in Jesus, they are made new. He says, as for me, may I never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of that cross, my interest in this world has been crucified. Because of Jesus on the cross, our interests in this world, they can be crucified. We choose to nail them there or not. And the world's interest in me, Paul says, has also died. 
It doesn't matter whether we've been circumcised or not. What counts is whether we have been transformed into a new creation. Doesn't this last couple sentences sound just like Galatians 5, 6 that we read a few minutes ago? It doesn't matter whether we are circumcised or uncircumcised, Paul wrote in those other verses. He says, what is important is faith expressing itself in love. It's no accident that Paul is using almost the exact same words here at the very end of his letter. It's a literary technique called bookending, and he does it on purpose. He reminds the church what counts when faith expresses itself in love is that we're transformed into a new creation. When we accept this righteousness from God that simply falls on us, that we passively receive, it flows into everything we do and who we are. Sure, it might look like active righteousness in the world, but we don't do those things because we're trying to climb the ladder. There's no Jesus plus that makes us better with God. We simply receive the gifts and it works itself out into the new creation that we become all the time. Our lives become more and more driven by the Spirit all the time. And these fruits start to show up. That transforming power is love. And take a look as Gru experiences, experiences this transformation driven by love. Okay, girls, time for bed. Oh, come on, you want a story? Three sleepy kittens! Oh no, sorry, that, that book was accidentally destroyed maliciously. Tonight, we are going to read a new book. This one is called One Big Unicorn. By who wrote this? Oh, me! I wrote it. Oh, look, it's a puppet book. Here, watch this. Best mm. horn. <laughs> 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 This is going to be the best book ever. Not to pat myself on the back, but yes, it probably will be. Here we go. One big unicorn, strong and free, thought he was happy as he could be. Then three little kittens came around and turned his whole life upside down. Hey, that one looks like me. No, what are you talking about? These are kittens. Any relation to persons living or dead is completely coincidental. They made him laugh. Ha ha! They made him cry. Ooh. He never should have said goodbye. And now he knows he could never part from those three little kittens that changed his heart. Okay, all right. Good night. isn't it? This is the power of love to transform all of us, all the time, into new creations. Uh, one of my favorite professors in seminary, her name is Dr. Janine Brown. She's a New Testament scholar. She co-authored a book 
with uh, some other scholars in other fields, uh, social science fields. And it's all about spiritual formation. That's the fancy word, fancy phrase, if you will, of doing the process of becoming more and more like Jesus. Not because we're trying to climb the ladder to get right with him, because we already know that as our truth. We already know that that's where we're rooted, and so we actively transform. We work in that because it flows out of us. And so she's co-authored a book about spiritual formation that was one that we read in seminary. And she and these other uh, scholars in other fields, like psychology and sociology, they write that the primary formation strategy, the primary way to be transformed is love. Love is the primary formation strategy. Love unifies us like Jesus did. It's bringing people together. And it's not just living out love. It's knowing that you are loved. It's also this top-down love. And they go on to write that this love, it's not done in a vacuum. This formation is not done independently. It's always done in community. When we transform into the new creation that Christ has called us to be, as we actively live into that, it happens in community. We have a lot of ways for you to get plugged into this community, not because we're telling you, oh, we need you at this stuff so that you can get right with God. That will make you a better Christian. Not at all. Jesus, period, is why we're here. And as that new life, as the spirit-driven life begins to work in and through you, come hang out in community with us. It's only going to grow more. Our back-to-school drive started this weekend. It lasts all week until next weekend. The best part of this back-to-school drive is that when the families, the Angel Tree families, receive their school supplies, we're throwing them a party so we can love on these kids who might not get loved all that often. Then at the end of August, August 27th, uh, we have an outdoor baptism service. Baptism is being made new in Christ. That's what happens in baptism. And watching a full immersion baptism is a really powerful thing because you literally watch people be dunked underwater. They're dying to an old way of life. And as they come up, they are being raised with Jesus in a new way of life. That's baptism. That, that is transformation. It's being made new, a new creation in who Christ has called us to be. In October, we'll start uh, adult small groups. We will have enough small groups for every single one of you to be in a small group, for our entire congregation to be involved in a small group this fall for only seven weeks. It's not a life group for only seven weeks. I can count that on two hands. You can do it. Plug into a small group. It's a small group community where you can grow and be transformed. We're here for you, church. We're here so that we can all experience this goodness of God, this righteousness, this glory, this love together all the time. We also remember what God has done for us, that it's Jesus, period, when we take communion. Jesus poured himself out for us on the cross. And so when we take communion, we do it as community. We take communion somberly around here. It's good order. We're Lutheran. But communion is a celebration of what Jesus has done. So if you wanted to get a little crazy during communion today, as you came up your row— Maybe you just bumped elbows with the person in the row next to you that you don't know and said, happy communion. Wouldn't that be crazy? You don't have to. I'm just suggesting. 